Thank you for my welcome. Much appreciated. Over the next four weeks, we are going to be covering sort of four psalms. So the, today will be a song of choice, which is Psalm 1, and a song of worship, Psalm 95, a song of anguish, Psalm 6, and a song of peace, Psalm 23. So that's where we're going in the next four weeks, and I want to make some observations before we dive in. So let's um, so let, hang on. I sh- some of you probably got your Bibles open, and they're good for you. But uh, it, let's just uh, observations here about the Psalms. They're the most well-known and well-loved portion of the Old Testament. And it, if you don't know your way around your Bible, if you just opened it, sort of in the middle sits the Psalms. It's, a, it's approximately there. And in the Psalms, we learn about God. And we learn about human nature, and we learn how life is to be lived. You'll find it all in the Psalms. It's full of this. Now, the word psalm means song or poem. It's not only to be instructive, it's also to stir up and and yet hold the affections of the heart. That's why they're so deeply loved. It's because they express so much of everyday life. You'll find it, again, all in the Psalms. They are not meant not only to affect our thinking, but also our feelings. So nearly all of them were sung to music. And music provides rhythm, rhyme, repetition. That's why we learn uh, and we remember through songs so well. I, I can still remember the words of songs that I learned that I just learned and picked up in my teens, or late teens, early 20s. So I thought I'd give you just a little snippet of, well, I see if you know this um, singer. Don't shout out, just enjoy it, because he's just brilliant. I know the whole album. I just know it. There'll be albums that you were brought up with, and you just know them. You just know all the words to all the songs. By the way, um, who is it? Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Ah, oh, he's the most depressing singer people have ever heard, and I just loved him. I just basked in his depression and all the rest of it. I think it's where I was at that time. and I still know all those words to the songs. It was, it was just brilliant. I went to an Ed Sheeran uh, concert recently uh, in Wembley in June. Um, you know, that's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? And um, they knew all the songs. Everybody knew the songs, except one. 
<laughs> but they, I mean, it was brilliant. We had a, such a great time. I mean, if I'd have been there a bit longer, I could have learned them a little bit better. But I mean, there was just, but in songs, it's memorable. And the Psalms are memorable. And songs express feelings. And the Psalms express feelings. So you get the feeling, he's, they're never afraid to say it. I'm lonely and afflicted. I'm lonely and afflicted. That's uh, loneliness. And then there's love. I, I love you, Lord. My strength. And then there's regret. I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. Psalm 38. My eyes waste away because of grief. We get that, don't we? We get that. That's uh, grief. Psalms uh, 6 verse 7. And gratitude. I will thank you in the great congregation. Pain. I'm afflicted and in pain. You know, in the Psalms, you have the whole range of emotions, every one of them. And they're not observations of life, by the way. They're more explicitly than any other book in the Bible. They're designed to, they're designed to shape our emotions in line with the instruction that they bring. One more observation. These Psalms are inspired by God. They're not merely the word of man. We may connect with it and all the rest of it, but they're inspired by God. God has guided what was written, arranged it, in order that the Psalms would teach truth, and when properly understood, my friends, they give the right direction to our emotions. So, that's just a little brief observations. Let's turn to Psalm 1. We're going to read this together. All right, so if, we can, if you've got a different version, I wondered if we could stay with the same version that comes up on the screen. I, I find this really um, quite helpful. Um, so, Psalm 1. Here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yields its fruit in season. And whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. That the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You'll notice this is not a prayer. So if you go to Psalm 3, you go, Lord, how many of my foes? Lord, how many of my foes? How how many rise up against me? Or Psalm 10, why why do you stand afar off? I wonder if you've ever said that to the Lord. Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in... Why do you hide in times of trouble? This is all in here. Psalm 16, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 1 has a different framework. The writer isn't talking to God. And the writer isn't talking to others as he is in some cases. He's not talking to others. He's talking to himself. This psalm is known as a meditation. It's a meditation. Now, uh, Eugene Peterson is a Christian writer of many books. 
And he is purported to have said this. We do not learn how to meditate properly. If, if, sorry, we do not learn how to meditate properly, then our relationship with God, our prayer life, won't be that great. We will struggle in our relationship with God and our lives won't change that much either. So hence meditation is very important. Now this is what the writer is doing here. Now I'll weave the meditation aspect in uh, a little bit later. I have three things to pick up. As a believer, it speaks of your direction. As a believer, it describes you. It's descriptive of you. And as a believer, it shows you your destiny. So you've got direction, description, and destiny. First one and two. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. Now the word blessed means happy. And the word is rich. It's, 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 a, it's a sense of fulfillment. So it, it encompasses our moral, mental, and physical well-being. It's really a wholeness about the word blessed. There's not a list of do's and don'ts, by the way. It's, it's about influence. The contrast he wants to make is being, is being influenced from one place versus being influenced from another. It's about influence. Whatever influences you is going to set the direction of your life. Let me say that again. Whatever influences you is going to set the direction of your life. Someone asked the lady of 104 years old, said, what's the best thing about being 104? No peer pressure. So, no peer pressure, she said. No, but I thought, I just, uh, you know, now look, as I look out here, Yep, there's nobody 104 here, I can see that. And, and it's not speaking to a 104-year-old either. For most of us, there's plenty of peer pressure. And now, you think that's just a young people's game, but it's not. Our culture, our culture is an incredible mix of pressure. And so you throw that into the mix, there's a culture pressure that we face. Whatever influences you is going to set the direction of your life. Until recently, most cultures put a lot of stock in traditions and uh, ancient traditions. And it valued the wisdom of previous generations that had been accumulated over many years. That's, uh, That's how they did it. But we live in a modern age. Now, how far back does that go, you might say? Some would say it goes 150, maybe as many as 200 years. Our modern age. Our modern age, our modern culture is scornful of the traditions and wisdom of the past. Our modern age perceives it as enlightened. C.S. Lewis, he's the writer of the Narnia series of books, he calls it chronological snobbery. And it's the... What's that? It's, it's the uncritical acceptance of the intellect of our current age. It's the uncritical acceptance of the intellect of our current age. In other words, that everything before it is out of date. And therefore discredited. 
I mean, it's incredibly arrogant, massively dismissive. People never thought like this. This is our modern culture in which we live. You need to understand it. You need to know it. The strange thing is here, in 20 or 30 years' time, all the thinking now. See, have you ever thought that? I thought, have you ever thought this through? <laughs> it's going to be dismissed. We got, we're enlightened. We got new thinking. So the question to ask, I think, really is, what progress, what progress have we made? What progress have we done? Now, of course, there have been techno- technological progress. You know, we are safer because of that, and, and that's great. Uh, no problems with that. And also, the, we have the reversal of many of the grosser social inequities, inequities such as slavery. Although, even today, that's rearing its ugly head, and we have another name for it, and it's called modern slavery. Very interesting, isn't it? It comes in a different guise. Yet through our ancestors, though our ancestors, they had, they had less political freedom than we do. They had less medical care and understanding that we have. Their holidays were non-existent. They had no health benefits. They're shorter life expectancy. So the question is, are we any happier? It's a really interesting question, that. What progress have we really made? In fact, if you read the journals and diaries of our ancestors, you go back, do you see as much self-pity? Do you see as much boredom? Do you see as much meaninglessness and despair? Do you see that? It is difficult to make the case. It is difficult to make the case that we are happier, blessed, that we are happier for all our progress. Comfortable? Yeah. Convenience? Oh, yeah, I get that. Yet, self-pity, self-indulgence, boredom, despair, meaninglessness, I mean, it's all increased. Someone wrote an article, it's called Trapped in the Cult of the Next Thing. It's the next purchase, the next gadget, the next holiday, the next car, the next job. We were in a conversation yesterday, I was listening to a conversation yesterday, and they were talking about this camera, this camera brilliant camera sounded fantastic you know it um it can take pictures of craters on the moon now before you want to buy it, it's a thousand pounds just thought i'd let you know that it's a thousand pounds it's the next new thing and then the next new thing we are caught in a culture of the next new thing my friends that this has a problem here because it absorbs our thinking. And we lose the capacity to enjoy the things we have now. We quickly tire of the next new thing. Amazon and the online realm are flourishing in the land of the next new thing. This is their day. And they are making hay. Consumers and teachers us not, not to value things too much. But it teaches us to value things too little. This is our culture. I suppose the question is, are we any happier? This is a clip of uh, Charlie Mackesee, and he does the first week on the Alpha Course videos. And um, can we, you're going to run that back, can you? Because I, I just let me 
put you in the picture here. And, and the, the video is, is, is there more to life than this? And he begins, this is why I want to back at the beginning. This, he begins with, he gets this part, retelling part of his story. Thanks. Um, I was painting in Southern Africa in a place that was, you know, new to me, and I was living in a hotel, and I hadn't really seen suffering like it. Maybe you have. I haven't seen suffering since the street ever in my life. Such was it that, you know, I just said, how did you cope with this? And in the matter that said that opposite me was another woman, there was a lady who just looked at the truck, and, and I got to know her, and she had a little bit of paper stuck in the wall, and it just said, I have handwritten, I am the bread of life. Just said that. And then Nugget said, Jesus. And I said, oh, you know, so you believe that stuff. And she said, she said, yeah. And I got to know them. And I saw what they had. It's way more than what I found back in my kind of culture. And um, she, I said, isn't that ironic, though, that you're talking about bread that we seem to have for a little I'm not trying to be clever or kind of diss your faith, but isn't it odd? And, you know, in conversation, she kind of invited me. She just said, <laughs> she said, that isn't about real bread, it's about something else. It's a spiritual bread that you feed on. What do you feed on each other? Where you come from? What do you spiritually do you feed on? And I kind of got quite defensive, but I suppose, you know, um, football. <laughs> I curse the sometimes. I cry afterwards. Um, I don't know, I couldn't answer it. I don't want to spiritually feed food, man. I just couldn't answer it. And, and uh, you know, she said, I think where you come from, you fill your brain with things. You're very learned, which means you were learned. But she said, you, you, you read a lot. You think a lot. Your brain is full. What goes on with you? What fills you in there? What? And she was very gentle. And she said, I, I, I don't know. Really. Um, and she said, well, this is this thing. She said, this is good. This is your love. And again, I just thought, well, kids, you had an education. I was very angry. Um, anyway, but it did catalyze me to think to the question, you know, what it is that to life is this is right. It's a great video. And uh, he's he's out of the box, is Charlie Mackesy. He's been out of the box, but you just love it and he's so honest. So he asked the the lady asked him the question, well what do you feed yourself with? And I'm going to ask the same question. What do you feed yourself with? Because if you, if you don't understand the culture of our day and the pressure of our day, you're going to feed yourself with the wrong stuff. What are the, what are the influences going on in your life? You know, he talks about walking with the wicked and and standing with sinners and sitting with mockers. And somebody once said that, somebody said about this psalm that um, he obviously hadn't taken media advice before he wrote it because he starts with a negative, you know, wicked, sinners, mockers. And, but he is intentional in what he doesn't do as well as what he does do. He is intentional in what he doesn't do as well as what he does do. That's, that's the key here. His life is not passive. His life is not in neutral. Walking, standing, sitting. My friends, that's the image of everyday life. This man is not, uh, blessed is the man who doesn't drop his life in the stream, that the, the running stream, and just lets it take him wherever it wants to take him. No, 
He's incredibly intentional. Think of the wicked and the sinner and the mocker as the worst of the kind. Actually, that would be a mistake. It, It may well come from people that we know, like teachers or friends or family. It simply suggests that if you, and they suggest that if you don't think their way, then you're viewed as not bright. You're not very bright or, or even a little dull. You know, if you don't act this way, you're not cool. There's a culture flow in this country that is very cynical towards the Christian faith. So you know, where is your influence coming from? It's really important, this. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, somebody said to me, oh, you'll grow out of it. I'm still growing in it. And the person who said you'll grow out of it is growing in it too. Amen? See? Still growing in it. You don't really believe all that stuff, do you? Do you get that question? I get that question. Do you get the question? Yeah, I do. What's going to influence you? This person's not living as a hermit, by the way, and avoiding people. It's about influence. You have to understand the culture in which we live, and Christians were called to be countercultural. It costs not to go with the flow. Now, there's a positive side here, of course. Look at the word. His delight, his delight, you get that? His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's his delight. What's the law of the Lord? I can tell you what it isn't. It's not a thick book of legal legislation with all its intricacies. Wow, I'd love to get into that. What's the delight in that? No, it's not that at all. The law of the Lord is, is, is generally agreed as the first five books of the Bible. But in this particular instance, the phrase is bigger than that. And there's a sense of it's the whole scripture of God. It's, not a, it's, it's what he delights in. The whole scripture... This is how God reveals himself. It's one of the primary ways God reveals himself is through his word. You gotta get it. Let it get into you. Let it saturate you. Let it break down all your thinking. If you, if, where are you going to get your moral standpoints in life? Are you going to get it out there or are you going to get it from here? You're going to make your stand. It's really key. You know, and in this word of God, you find his commitment to you. You find his faithfulness to you. You have to drink it in. You have to drink it in. Well, you know, we worship a God we know. You will only, you'll know him through this word. I, I meet Christians and I think, I'm not sure, I, uh, I'm not sure that God I, that you, you have is the same one as this one. You know, you know, let, him, let him soak into your life. It's the word of God. You can't have a God that will suit your moral, you know, your, your moral comfort zones. It's not, no, no. Get the, get the word, get the Bible. Get the God of the Bible. Let it sink into you. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. We want the real thing, my friends. Not some sort of pseudo-God. And notice the word meditate. It is his word, we, you, it gets into your thinking. Meditation seems to carry around with it the sense of muttering, murmuring. For instance, it would be like me stopping at a service station asking for directions. 
I wish to tell you, this is very unmale-like. I don't know if you're the same. That's the way I am. I just, I will always find a way around. I don't want to stop the car. I will find out. I will, I will get to where I want to get to. And, uh, but this, this is what it's like. It's a person who does this. You know, you go in, you ask for directions, and uh, they give you directions, and you repeat the directions back to the person, you know. And I said, okay, so I go down the road, I, I got left at that next main junction, and, and there's the bridal shop on the right. And then you go past that, and then there's a, then there's a, then there's, then there's a pub. And, and it's just after the pub, you just turn right. That's, that's right. And you go, I'm murmuring as I go, and the bridal shop, the main, the, main, the main route turned left, the bridal shop on the right, the pub. Immediately afterwards, I get in the car and I said, there's, you know, you go straight down here, you turn left at the main junction, there's the bridal shop on the right, there's a, you'll be able to repeat this at this rate. And uh, then, and then it's str- immediately after the pub on the right. And, uh, and so she starts muttering and murmuring the, the directions. That, that's what it's like, you're sort of repeating them over. I went into a tie shop the other day and uh, I knew what they're going to say, because I was asking about tires, I knew what they were going to say. Okay, so what size are your, what's the size of your tire? 225, 45, 19. I mean, it's just straight off the bat. Why did I know that? I memorized that because I knew that's the first question he's going to ask. And I'm going to have to go out to the car again and find out what that is. Forget halfway, go back again. No, so I know it. You're muttering, you're murmuring. What is it to meditate? Mutter, murmur, chew it over. Get the truth of God's word in you. You know, I mutter it and murmur it and speak it out. I've been chosen before the creation of the world. If you're holy, blameless in his sight what a choosing that is and in love he predestined me to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will that's great I didn't plan it, he did you know you just get this in, it's Ephesians chapter 1 and just get it into you speak it out, I'm a son of the king he's plans and purposes for my life He's empowered me through the Holy Spirit to live a life that will glorify him, that will overcome temptation, that will honor my wife, that will encourage and bless my family. I've been blessed in order to be a blessing. You know, get the stuff in you. Then you start to live this stuff out. Meditate, chew on it. Get the best out of God's word. Don't just read the box. Don't just read the Bible. Tick the box. Read my Bible for the day. God wants to speak to you through his word. I know some days we do that, and I know I've covered it and all the rest of it. But stop. There's the word sila in the Psalms. It means take a pause. Don't rush. Take time. You can't do that if your Bible reading is just a tick box. You've got to pause. You're going to say, Neil, I have a busy life. And I've got to keep up with my iPad and my phone and all the rest of it. You need to take a pause. You need to take a pause, my friends. And he describes the believer as a tree that's planted streams of water. Yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Real happiness is not superficial, it has depth. Happiness is often expressed through external matters in our culture. But the tree has roots that go deep down. Experiences different seasons. There are obviously seasons in this tree. 
that are where there's fruit and there are seasons without fruit. And yet it doesn't wither. Real happiness is where your roots are. There's a description of a believer who has stability in all seasons of life. Elizabeth Elliot was widowed three years after being married. Jim Elliot was her husband. He was murdered on a beach in the Ecuadorian jungle with four other men trying to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. She says this, joy is not the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. Elizabeth went back to that spot in the jungle to see where her husband died and to see the men who killed him. And eventually, she and her daughter lived and loved that tribe in Jesus' name. That's a great lady. She says, faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. The apostle Peter says, you rejoice in him even though you are suffering, you are su- even though you are suffering grief. Do you know, this, this tree is a tree of vitality and constancy and productivity. It's a tree of Christian life. Do I know that some of you are here? And it, please hear this. Some of you, in your suffering and your faithfulness to God through it, are the reason that others are still here. They got it. They saw what was going on in your life and the constancy, but despite the suffering. And they said, I want what that person's got. Meditate, think, chew over the goodness of God's word. There's another picture here as well. I like pictures. Otherwise, it's all words, isn't it? It's like chaff. Chaff, that's it, chaff. It's a brilliant picture, chaff. Just says it all, the word says it all, doesn't it? Chaff. It's the shell. It's the casing. It's the leftover of the cereal grain. You know, the farmer forks and scoops and throws up the grain, and everything that's got weight, all the grain drops. And everything that's weightless is blown away by the wind. It's weightless, of no substance. That's why people say, oh, it's chaff. It means worthless, really. This is um, Dale Ralph Davis. He writes this. Occasionally, someone has the insight to pronounce a chaff estimate on his life. Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune for over 30 years, Greeley, who believed man was naturally good, backed the founding of some 40 communes during the 1840s, all of which failed. He advocated various other causes, among them free love. He always seemed to be pressing for something new, as if it might usher in a man-made utopia. He was politically crushed when he ran for president in 1872. After the election, he looked back at his life and viewed it as a waste, a sacrifice to one foolish crusade after another. In a statement not long before he died, he wrote, I stand naked before my God, the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who ever saw the light of day. And yet I take God to witness that I never intended to injure or harm anyone. But that is no excuse. Perhaps the only thing worse than being chaff is to know you have been chaff. That's a very sober reading. I remember reading about an eight-year-old who'd been, in, uh, been coming to church every now and then, 
And then the gospel hits him. And he responds to the gospel. And he comes down, he cries and cries and cries. And all he says is, I wasted my life. I wasted my life. Chaff. It's just been a waste. Well, obviously he hadn't at that point because he found Christ. But he could see that he'd, all that time was wasted. So it's the destiny part. And I'm pretty much done here. All I want you to know is that there is a destiny here. How you think will affect how you live. And how you live will affect your destiny. When I take a funeral, one, or two, one of the thoughts I often leave people is, is, is that one which I suspect that most, a number of people have in their heads at that time. And I say, you know, having heard all about the person's life and all they've done and how much they've meant as brother, sister, mom, dad, whatever... I said, I've got to leave you with a question sometimes. Is that it? Is that it? What was that all that about? Now, our instinct, everybody's instinct, you know, is this world is not enough. We were made for more. And we are. Now, the righteous put their life in the hands of God. To be righteous is not about being perfect. It's something God has done because of Jesus Christ. Forgiven people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. The first word is blessed. The last word is destruction. You don't know your destiny of life. My friends, God has put a homing device in you and me. And the device is for heaven. And we won't settle for anything less, will we? The psalm is a choice. Let's have that psalm back up, please. Just ask you. The psalm is a choice. Whatever you do, choose well. We're going to read, look at this. And just for two or three, maybe four minutes, with the band come up and Francis with you come up, I'm leaving you with the psalm. That's where we're here. I'm leaving you with the psalm. Have a look at it, have a read, and have a little bit of time to pause. See if God will say anything to you in this psalm.